I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. I would like to welcome Elon Musk to the world of right-wing conspiracy theorists. He's now been added to the ranks of right-wing conspiracy theorists by nothing less than Wikipedia. So, Elon, welcome. We are going to talk about Elon Musk today. We're also going to talk about Candace Owens and a couple other prominent people who have been saying some very, very truthful things about the Jewish question, Jewish power. And so to do that, I would like to welcome two people to the show. I'd like to welcome David Zuddy. David Zuddy is the executive director of the Homeland Institute, and he also writes for Countercurrents. David, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. We have a lot to talk about. And I'm also inviting on, bringing on board, Pox Populi. Pox, welcome back. Hello. Hello, David. Good to be here. Good to be chatting with you guys. And we might have a few people who just sort of Seinfeld style or friend style just drop in in the course of the stream. And so this promises to be a really, I think, enjoyable conversation about a current thing. Originally, we were going to do a stream about Richard Hanania's most cringe-inducing tweets, which we could do, you know, we could do a 12-hour stream on that stuff. There's endless material. We had to postpone that because the two people that I was going to do it with, the two principal people, were the Ayatollah and Matt Parrott, and both of them are out sick today. There's some kind of transatlantic plague going on, I guess. But we will reschedule when they feel up to it, and there'll be no shortage of new Tanania tweets to discuss. But this is the, the current thing, what Elon Musk is doing. And in case you're not aware of what's happened, this is the basic story. The new Twitter is an amazing place where the richest man in the world can suddenly respond to you. You can be a nobody with very few followers at all. And if you say something, sometimes Elon Musk sees it and sometimes he will respond to it and suddenly you're a star. And what happened, I'm just going to read, this is in the Elon Musk Names the Jew piece by Travel LeBlanc that we published on Thursday. It's a very nice overview of it. Basically, there is a Jewish guy in Florida named Charles Weber. As Trav points out, not a major Twitter figure at all. And he had a tweet. He said, to the cowards hiding behind the anonymity of the internet and posting Hitler was right. You got something you want to say? Why don't you say it to our faces? And he was responded to by another person who's not very well known, somebody who calls himself the artist formerly known as Eric. And he says, okay, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest shit now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realization that those hordes of minorities they support flooding their country don't like them too much. You want truth said to your face? There it is. Now, this is interesting, but it could have been absolutely nothing. Just something that the ADL and the SPLC would add to their files, right? This Eric guy now has a file. However, the richest man in the world responded to it, and he said, you have said the actual truth. Well, Great line. Is, That's a, a line yeah. for history. Yeah, yeah, you have said the actual truth. In fact, we're going to change the motto at Countercurrents to the actual truth every day because that's, that's the actual truth. And we want to welcome 
Elon to the world of people who can say the actual truth every day. It's it's a refreshing free space, space to be in. And then Elon didn't retreat from this. He actually doubled down. He made a statement, the ADL unjustly attacks the majority of the West, despite the majority of the West supporting the Jewish people and Israel. This is because they cannot, by their own tenets, criticize the minority groups for their primary threat. It is not right, and it needs to stop. And there is a response that he made to another guy uh, who said, well, it's not all Jewish communities. And Elon wrote back, you write, <laughs> you're right, that this does not extend to all Jewish communities, but it is also not just limited to the ADL. So, you know, he basically stepped back a little and then thrust forward again. This is how you have a sword fight, right? <laughs> you go back and forth. And uh, then he adds this, and at the risk of being repetitive, I am deeply offended by ADL's messaging and any other groups who push de facto anti-white racism or anti-Asian racism or racism of any kind. I'm sick of it. Stop now. Now, some people will say he's talking about anti-Asian racism and well, that's all well and good. This is huge because, of course, all forms of racism are bad except racism against white people. So saying he's against anti-white racism is an important thing. It's a very important thing. So this is well, big. There's, there's another response um, that might okay. have slipped under some people's radar. He also responded to Ava Vladingerbrook, the uh, shield maiden of the far right, as some lefty publication labeled her. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people say Ava's our girl, and of course, she's very attractive, and there's lots of you know memes about her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's come a long way from where she used to be. She could improve and take further steps on that path. But we'll leave that to the side for now. Elon Musk also responded to something she said right around the same time. This is about two days ago, so it's around the same timeline. Ava had posted, everyone is allowed to be proud of their race except for white people because we've been brainwashed into believing that our history was somehow worse than that of other races. That false narrative needs to die. And if we really want to do the comparing game, white people have also done a lot of good for the world. And Elon responded, yeah, this is super messed up. Time for this nonsense to end and shame anyone, all caps, who perpetuates these lies. I mean, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. He's he's named Jews as promoting anti-white hate and the Great Replacement. And he has named the heinous double standard about white guilt all in one week. That's pretty good work. This is the kind of stuff that when I started countercurrents, you could only mutter about on the margins of the internet. Now, the richest man in the world is saying it in the, in the world's de facto public square. And people have noticed it. People have really noticed. Yeah. It's, it's very popular. It was one of my favorite points, which, which was that if we have to take all the guilt for all the negative stuff that our ancestors supposedly did, well, why can't we take credit for all the good stuff like vaccines, like normal, not the COVID vaccine, but normal vaccines like for polio, <laughs> railroads, all that stuff. And also, why yeah. don't they have to take responsibility for their horrible things? Like yeah. people yeah. give, I guess, Genghis Khan has a get out free jail card, the Aztecs for humane, like whatever. And then there's, of course, white slavery out of North Africa. This, of course, devolves into the victim Olympics. I prefer to focus on the good things people did instead of the bad things. That's just more positive. But it's true. It's this weird thing where... There's ancestral guilt for own. It's com- it's complete double standard. I know that sounds like a conservative talking point, but it's just so hypocritical. Even normies are seeing it now. 
It's right. and it's beautiful. There's a there's a little essay, I think it's from 2006 by Michael Polignano called White Pride and White Guilt. And it's at Countercurrents. It's in his book, Taking Our Own Side. And it lays out this, this very argument. And I think that argument is a very powerful argument. And again, that has gone from the margins of the internet to the mainstream, and it's being seconded by somebody like Elon Musk. This is tremendous progress that we've made, and it's happening so fast. Yeah, just about that uh, double standard. I mean, it's not really a double standard in some ways because it's it's targeted antagonism by people who have disproportionate influence in academia, politics, and media. We all know that. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a double standard through the eyes of innocent you know, bystanders, but the people who are in the thick of it, we know that this is actually a tactic. It's a tool with the desired result of chipping away at the Gentile European uh, and, and his nations. It also just seems to be that there's uh, perhaps, you know, when, when normies or, or, you know, low IQ types repeat these, these, you know, lines, like uh, one line that's often repeated is that the French or the British, uh, deserve to have their homeland flooded with, you know, the entire world's human detritus because they had empires, which just doesn't make sense because Mongolia, you mentioned Genghis Khan, David, Mongolia had the largest land empire and I don't see Iranians swarming into Mongolia, you know, formerly Persia, swarming into Mongolia and reducing Mongolians to a minority status in their own country. So it seems to be that for, you know, normie types, there's like this statute of limitations like Europeans were the most recent people to have big empires and do great conquests. So therefore they are the only culpable party here. It's just, you know, nonsense, but yeah, these talking points yeah. are often brought yeah. up and they need to be dismantled too. I'm a huge fan of history. That's actually history and esotericism and how I got into these politics. But you know what? We, we say that history didn't begin on October 7th in regards to the current conflict in Gaza. Well, when I was in college and undergraduate, I'm going to take a bunch of history classes, but almost all of them are post-1500, so they could kvetch about the slave trade, colonization, inequality, blah, 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 and nothing ancient. So everything ancient, and this is at UC San Diego, which is supposedly a good school, thousands of years of history were simply skimmed over. I was happy they had two classes on the Roman Empire, but there's nothing on, say, Egypt or Sumeria combined, maybe. And so... For, for the normies, it's like history began when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Nothing happened mm -hmm. before then. Mm -hmm. It's just this weird thing with maybe knights and Romans, but whatever, they're <laughs> probably racist, or maybe they were black too somehow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it's totally ridiculous. Like I really think a big point we have to make with the normies is to have a historical perspective, both for metaphysical reasons, but just to put history in perspective that war, scarcity, competition are the norm. They are not the exception. Also, really, if you put it all into perspective, that also goes into, you know, constitution worship being the silly, but it, it's true. The, these, you, you can't put, you, it's completely going over all of history to what all these, and they did a lot of good stuff too. It's, it's actually insulting to BIPOC people because they had great empires and civilizations. So it's completely ridiculous and it just reduces everything down to a fairy tale where we have this rich human experience we could draw upon. Yeah, I, for one, I'm tired of it. <laughs> I do think that history is always taught with an anti-white lens today. And again, if collective guilt makes sense, 
then why not collective pride? And if collective pride makes no sense, then why does collective guilt make no sense? And if you actually say, okay, let's look at the things that we should be collectively proud of and the things that we should be collectively ashamed of and do a balancing, it turns out that whites have a lot more to be proud of than to be ashamed of. But the mainstream will not allow us to do that. And that's why we had to do this on the margins of the internet for a long time. And now maybe this balancing of the books is coming home to the mainstream. And it's extremely, it's extremely exciting to see this happen. Let's talk a little bit about some other episodes online recently, which support this. There was an, first of all, there's been a, a debate between Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro. Candace Owens is a black lady. She was the black lady who went to Congress to testify about white nationalism. Nobody would return my phone calls uh, when I said, I know if you're going to have a, a hearing about white nationalism, I'd love to testify. I wrote this book called The White Nationalist Manifesto. But of course, nobody ever returned my phone calls. But then Candace Owens shows up. And of course, Republicans just can't say no to a black woman who speaks their talking points. And uh, Candace first popped up during Gamergate and she plays her intersectional cards extremely well. She's black, she's female, and she's based in a civic nationalist kind of way. She's married to a white guy. She's, I think, genuinely intelligent, fairly articulate, and she's had a huge career, her Blexit thing. Remember Blexit, right? Uh, all of this feeds on and monetizes richly the, the hopes of normie Republicans to have black people on their team is a very expensive form of insurance against being called a racist. And of course it never works, but they still be, keep paying those dues. And, but Candace has gone to work for Ben Shapiro. She's probably even paid a huge amount of money. She probably has a really nice contract, so we can't fire her anytime soon without losing a great deal. And so she's got a situation where her boss has been acting completely unhinged and bloodthirsty about the Gaza conflict. And she has been taking a more nuanced stance. She's been uh, saying things that are pro-Palestinian. And poor Ben Shapiro has just been freaking out about this. And so they had an online spat. Then she goes on an interview with Tucker Carlson. And the following exchange took place, basically. I'm just paraphrasing. They were talking about these Jewish billionaire mega donors to Ivy League schools who are saying they're going to pull their money out because these schools are anti-Semitic. Why are they anti-Semitic? Because they're not censoring pro-Palestinian statements, booting pro-Palestinian students off the campus. Jews are worried and their feelings matter. And Candace Owens basically said, you know, it's interesting that they're pulling their money out about anti-Semitism, but they were perfectly content to write checks to support anti-white hate. And Tucker Carlson chimed in and amplified, agreed and amplified that. And he actually said that they're, they're pushing, preaching, quote unquote, white genocide. And they were fine with the white genocide but they're closing their checkbooks when it comes to 
pro-Palestinian statements. Well, that's basically saying that Jewish mega donors are underwriting white genocide, anti-white hatred, these sorts of teachings. And we all know what these teachings sound like, critical race theory and all that. They're underwriting these things happily, but they're closing their checkbooks when their particular ethnic ox is gored. This is something that, again, people like us have been saying on the margins of the internet for decades now. And two very mainstream conservatives with huge audiences are sitting there talking it over and agreeing with it. I think it's absolutely remarkable, uh, a, a huge step forward. What do you think of this? First, first Pox. Yeah, it was a very interesting exchange between the two of them. Um, at one point, Tucker even said he sort of interrupted Candace Owens and when she was talking about how they, these uh, Jewish, wealthy Jewish donors and Jewish NGOs and things like that have been involved in this anti-white narrative. And Tucker interjects and says, they were paying for it. They were paying for it. He repeats it. You know, it's very, very uh, interesting statement to make there. And he also said something. He said a line that, you know, kind of like Elon Musk's line, you said the actual truth. This is a line that, you know, could also go down in history. Tucker was talking about how these Jewish activists, these wealthy Jewish donors, these Jewish curriculum molders, these Jewish-run Ivy League universities, they were, in his words, you know, attacking my children, creating a, an, an environment in which my children are being demonized for their skin color. I mean, Tucker is a bit of a boomer and he thinks race is just the skin color, but, you know, whatever. And so he's saying that and he's he is uh, appalled and he is angry that his children are being targeted for this. And uh, then he says, and then I found myself really hating these people, which kind of sounds like something. I began to hate them. <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like a, another line that a lot of us are familiar with. Um, it's just an unbelievable timeline that we, that we are in right now. Uh, history yeah. doesn't uh, repeat, uh, but it often rhymes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gradually, I began to hate them. I, I use that over and over again. One guy that I've used that line about is Charlie Kirk. <laughs> gradually, I began to hate Charlie. But recently, he's been on a redemption arc of his own. And the, the poor, innocent little lamb, I, I genuinely think that he really is a friend of the Jewish people. But recently, he was lecturing Jews and trying to explain to them that you know, if you're really concerned about shoring up white Gentile support for Israel, maybe you should can all these anti-white remarks and stop supporting anti-white teachings, critical race theory, anti-white hatred. I think he's you know, offering this advice in a genuine spirit of goodwill. And boy, is he getting some pushback for that. It reminds me of a tweet exchange today that I think Pox was involved in with this mm. Aronovich <laughs> or Aronstein yeah. or some, some... David, David Aronovich. Aronovich, who's saying, you know, he's ba it's basically he's doing the please hide me, bro, uh, routine. We're really scared. Please hide me, bro. And then people, of course, went back to his Twitter timeline and found that he's an absolute white-hating piece of shit. Not even his Twitter timeline. Appearances on Question Time, on the BBC, 
yeah. articles in in the yeah. Times. It's not right to talk about white interests. I mean, he's yeah. actually it's just never, said it's that. never right to defend white interests. Was actually the line. Then he has another yeah. one. I think it's from the Guardian. Enjoy the di enjoy diversity. It's what makes us great. He has a video which I think was also made for the BBC, in which he gleefully anticipates the you know approaching death of elderly Brexit voters. And then uh, he had a tweet where he told someone, you know what, fuck you and your white countries. <laughs> and so I've actually, I, I think I've ratioed him three times today. And he has like, I, I think uh, 175,000 followers or something like that. He's been getting absolutely raked over the coals and he's seething about it. He's absolutely seething. It's hilarious to see. There was this one exchange that you showed where somebody was trying to be helpful to him. Mm. Well, maybe you can, you know, I'm, I'm a friend of the Jewish people. This is exactly the same Charlie Kirk thing. I'm a friend of the Jewish people, but I think you have to understand that, you know, this, this left-wing Jewish pushing of, and he's basically just screams, fuck you. I don't want to hear, you know, don't, don't, how dare you speak? To, you know, how dare you tell us what to think, you know, mm -hmm. what to do? Yeah. The guy, yeah. someone was just responding to him saying, look, yeah, your your call to you know uh, English people in London to attend this you know I stand with Israel march coming up in a few in a few weeks. Okay, that's fine, but you have to understand that there is there has been anti-white sentiment promoted by you know left-wing Jews or something like that. Is what he said. This you know random person on X and yeah, uh, David Aronovich responds. You know, like fuck you for you, who are you to tell left-wing Jews what to think? <laughs> it's like we try, people are trying to offer an olive branch, and these arrogant Jews just smack it away. They they are really having a mental breakdown. They are really going fully mask off. So someone on on X actually said to David Aronovich, "Your mask is slipping. Maybe you should get one that fits your nose next time." <laughs> oh my goodness, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> that is the actual truth. This is this is very exciting. David, do you have some thoughts to add to this? Yes, this is actually a lot like black people, where for a long time the Republican Party wanted to push back on welfare and affirmative action, but they were too cut to do so because standing up for white people was considered the most horrible thing a Republican could ever do. So instead of openly and honestly advocating for our people, they would concern troll the blacks and say, well, welfare is hurting them because it creates this horrible cycle in the hood of absent fathers and dependency. And we need to, basically, we need to like bombard the hood with pocket constitutions and teach them about capitalism. Maybe make a mumble rap about the Federalist Papers. And same thing with affirmative action. One of the, you know, none of the affirmative action cases I saw actually said really openly advocated for whites. It, it, they'd always do some type of thing about equal protection and all this in a very roundabout way, like, let's treat everybody equal as individuals. And eventually, one of the kind of, I think they actually believed it, so I won't say it's bad faith, but it's one of the silly concern-trolled arguments was that affirmative action was hurting Black people because it created a stigma in their mind. And I look around, and all the Black people in who benefit from affirmative action, academia, they they don't care about that stigma. They're not, like, very, you know, philosophical people. They just want the Gibbs. I don't want to be crass here, but they don't, have that level, uh, they don't have that intellectual capacity to have a stigma. That's like a higher brain function thing that can, white people get tripped up about that. So they're all like, white people are complicated. 
quite frankly, our psychologies are more developed and this is going to be a strength or a weakness. Black people are kind of like, you know, lizards don't get confused about this. They don't have a stigma because someone feeds them. They think about basic stuff like survivalism, very focused, down to earth, factual. There's probably like one or two black people who have felt the stigma, like maybe Justice Clarence Thomas. They're probably less than 1% of black. So it's just silly trying to use these concern troll arguments instead of advocating for own people, even though the concern troll arguments are true. Like, one of the most philo-Semitic leaders in history ever was probably Miklos Horthy, or Horthy Miklos of Hungary, if you want to use the proper word name convention. But he took the elite Jews who were out of hand, out of power, and left the rest of the Jews alone. So that was the most pro-Semitic thing ever, because the Jews, if they're left to their own devices, you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. They'll start subverting everybody, open borders, pornography, usury. So if you just don't let them have run of this. Let, if you don't let them run the country, it actually keeps them safe because people won't get angry at the stupid stuff they do. Yeah, but that sounds very close to the idea that maybe they can't really be left to their own devices to uh, rule themselves, uh, that they need some kind of paternalism, which scares me, honestly, because I don't want to be in a situation where we have to add Israel to you know, a long list of other failed states that need constant Western paternalistic intervention. Uh, maybe, maybe there's some truth to that. I do think that Jews have a great genius for a lot of things, but they don't have a genius for self-government. And that, that really imperils their uh, ethno-nationalist project, definitely. Folks, if you have questions for us and comments, and you want to get them to the head of the queue, bribe us, send us a super chat. You can do that. There's a banner across the bottom, donations. Go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, take out your credit card, leave us a donation along with a question or a comment. We have a matching grant. It's almost over, but for the next couple hundred bucks that we give if, from first-time donors, that should be matched as well. So it'll go twice as far. We are doing a fundraiser. This is a big help to us. Countercurrents does a lot of things. If we don't have the money to do all those things, we'll stop doing some of those things. It's just the way the world works. So if you want to help us out with our fundraiser this year, please go to EntropyStream and leave a question, comment, and a super chat. And we will get to them in the course of this stream. I want to go to the first Super chat that's popped up on Odyssey. You can, of course, send Odyssey tips as well. It's from our friend Gaddius Maximus. And Gaddius wants to know, David, what do you think the cultural and political conditions would have to be like for someone to join the U.S. military in good conscience? And I, I think he's implicitly saying somebody who's white to join the U.S. military in good conscience. You're a military veteran. You've had some recent comments about enlistment. What are your thoughts? It would require a total and complete revolution. It would require sweeping reforms on the level of Gaius Marius or Cromwell. Not that I'm endorsing Cromwell. I think he's a savage beast. But aside from that, his reforms were very comprehensive and thorough and necessary. It would require getting rid of all the brass because they've been marinated in this careerist culture. So they have to all maybe train the replacement, but even then I'm hesitant because what, what, what would they be training them on? Send them off into retirement where they can golf and do whatever these silly people do. It would require 
I, I honestly think there will never be a point because I'd rather just break the U.S. military and force them to go to using mercenary companies because I think it'd be that'd be the best way to have power in an archaeofuturist sense where it'd be really us who, who rule the country one way or another. We become the deep state, which the Freemasons should have been, other people should have been, but they severely dropped the ball. And really, it, it does come down to power. It'd be very cool. It'd be very effective. It wouldn't be a totalist dictatorship, but it would be understood that there, are, the military companies have power. And if you look, I think we're going towards that with Wagner. I know I, I do not necessarily approve one bit of Putin's evasion of Ukraine, but Wagner is an interesting case study in how a they're essentially a mercenary army. They're their own thing, and they got big, and they could do their own thing. And America was playing with that with Blackwater. However, that was tamped down because they were essentially too Christian and Zionist, and Obama didn't like that. So they were tamped down a little bit. But I think, and going forward, you're going to have either these de defense companies that will have power because no one will enlist, and they have to get people who are competent and skilled. Or you might have more state governors having power because the state governors have their own troops, which they could lend the federal government. These aren't great troops, but they're still... They command a defensive fighting position, dig a trench, send them off. But really, so I don't think there is a solution. I, well, my, my strategy is just keep making demands, just like the liberals do, until I take everything. Like, you know, the story, give a, give, if you give a mouse a cookie. Well, if you, you saw what happens when you give a liberal a cookie, they take everything. Well, when you give a nationalist a cookie, we're going to take everything. I want to be able to dict, I want to have mercenary companies dictating policies to Congress, like build the wall, or else we won't fight your war. And they have to do it. I do like what you recently said about this ad. You wrote an article at Countercurrents, like a thousand reasons not to enlist, and basically said, look, they're obviously trying to appeal to white men because they think there's a war brewing. And there was a wonderful backlash on YouTube to this ad where you, it, you had either people just saying, I'm not going to go die for Israel, screw you people, or... They had hilarious, malicious compliance people. It's like, well, I'd love to enlist, but I feel that I should give my place to a black trans person instead. You know, we need more diversity. It's, it's their country now. They, they need to do the fighting for it. I'm going to get out of their way, et cetera, et cetera. I love all that. Uh, and you basically said, look, Thanksgiving is coming up. There are a lot of empty chairs. Why? Because there are more than a thousand political prisoners from January 6th alone. As long as America holds political prisoners, patriotic Americans should not enlist. We need to boycott the American military and we need to basically, they need to put more on the table than just sticking white guys in their recruitment videos. They need to start doing stuff, not just lip service, not just symbolism, not just pandering. They have to put something on the table. We're starting to make demands. We demand all these J6 people be pardoned and released and other things like that. I think that's extremely important. And I, I love what you're alluding to. It's something that Pox talked about. Uh, it's Guido Tietti's idea that instead of being the responsible parties that try and figure out solutions, right, that the liberals run up the debt and the conservatives try and pay for it, right, that kind of stuff. Instead of being like the super ego to the raging id of the left. You know, we, we try and or we, we try and reconcile their insanity with reality. 
and bear the brunt of that. We just start need to be making demands and presenting the system, not with solutions, with problems. Present them with problems until they fail, until they cannot rule anymore. And then that that's our opportunity. We absolutely can do that with clear conscience because we have gone out of our way to try to create solutions at great risk and great cost for ourselves. We have people in prison trying to look for solutions. Like Rob Rundo, who was in prison for defending MAGA grannies from savage Antifa terrorists at Huntington Beach. We would try to play nice. And our, you know, I've gradually come to hate trying to play nice. It, it got us nowhere. So it's very similar to what Tucker said, where he said, like, the, the message of the BLM movement was force gets you what you want. Well, we have to use our own force, which is a different type of force. But it is a force. It's a moral force. It's also the force of non-action. And one of the big things here is that the military, you know, they have to make these shells and airplanes. They need all these precious metals like copper and these precious metals, which, of course, they don't have a good supply for because they're stupid. And China has access to all of them. But the most precious mineral that they need for their war machine is white boy magic. And we have the monopoly on that. It's a very scarce resource. And resources that are scarce are more valuable. We need to look in the mirror and realize all the people who have crapped on us, who have insulted us, deprecated us, took us for granted. There, we have the power. We, you know, you know, Atlas won't shrug. Atlas is a capitalist, but Apollo is a nationalist. He's hyperborean. He literally hyperborean Apollo. When we shrug, we'll bring the system down. I do like the meme of the white strike. Go ahead. Yes. And just a little sneak peek, some uh, inside intel for our dedicated listeners here. There is a video coming out on or about Thanksgiving, No Hard Promises, about a speech that I think will be very inspiring and I hope will go viral about a white strike for our political prisoners. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good one. And uh, of course, you're the one who makes it. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to that being released. Uh, we, we put out a sneak photo from behind the scenes where you're making that speech and in the fundraiser you did the other day at countercurrents which uh i uh i was very happy with that's a that's a really powerful statement pox what are your thoughts oh i i don't disagree with uh, anything that was said um i i think the american situation is very complicated it's very difficult to find solutions or see solutions for the myriad problems that are over there and particularly regarding the military, I suppose, you know, at the risk of confirming Yuri Bezmenov's famous warning in that, that clip that now millions of people have seen on YouTube, where he warns about the Western nations and America in particular being so demoralized that they don't even bother fighting for their country anymore as it gets taken over by enemies. That sometimes sticks in the back of my mind. This was a, a big theme ever since the uh, special military operation carried out by Russia in Ukraine, where it's like, okay, yeah, maybe your country's uh, political class are absolute shit, but another country is rolling tanks over the border and blowing up your cities. So what do you do about that? Um, But I don't think that's going to happen in America ever. Really. And so I think, yeah, if if the wars that America is ginning up for are once again in random deserts in the Middle East, I don't think there's any reason why white Americans should enlist. Of course not. Um, Uh, Just uh, sorry. Go ahead, David. 
I want to, as they say in the military, piggyback off that and really foot stomp how there, there is a disturbing rise of third worldism. I'm not sure it's how much of it's intentional or just accidental, but the third worldism of, you know, Russia, China will save us is completely false. And I'm trying to destroy the military so I can, as Biden would say, hashtag build back better, not so that we can invade it by China. In fact, I want to destroy the military so you can make a better military so that we can deal with the rising threat of the Chinese empire because once you deal with the Jewish question, whatever that's, however that is sorted out, one way or another, the looming threat will probably be China and or AI. And we need to be ready to go for that. And we cannot be ready to go with having lesbians, Jews, and losers and careerists having any type of say in the military at all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, if I may, there was a, a question I have for you guys. Um, yeah. It's going back to the, uh, the theme of Carlson and Charlie Kirk and the like, all basically uh, dipping their toes in the pool of the JQ. Um, so I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on this. I posted this on Telegram. I'll just read the relevant parts because we already know who the, the players on the stage are. So I'll start here. The fundamental creed of the JQ is that Jews are, in general, antagonistic towards Gentile Europeans and disproportionately influential in creating policies and promoting ideas that harm Gentile Europeans. Over the past few weeks, Carlson, Musk, Kirk, and more have acknowledged this to some extent and in so many words. What's striking about this, then, is that it raises the question of whether or not they've been aware of the JQ all this time and have simply lacked the courage to speak forthrightly about it, or whether our work has opened their eyes and given them the push and the clarity they needed. So what do you guys think about this? Have these people known about the JQ and just kept stum, didn't quite know how to dress it, were just happy to collect shekels? Or were they unaware, but thanks to years and years of our work, they are now very aware of it. Uh, you know, our talking points have seeped into the mainstream and now they have no choice but to address it and even agree with it because it's the actual truth. <laughs> There's a third possibility here. And I think that that's closer to the truth. In my view, anybody who's intelligent in our society, uh, anybody who is in any position of prominence in whatever field is aware of Jewish power. You simply can't be intelligent and not notice it. But most people go along with it uh, or stay silent about it because either they're intimidated by it or they think that it'll sort of serve their interests. I can go into my own intellectual history here I came out of libertarianism, and even when I was a libertarian, I was very aware of the very substantial number of Jews who were involved in libertarian stuff. And I did find it very peculiar that they were so collectivist and statist when it came to Israel. I did notice that. And it was one of those little things that I, you know, made a note of to revisit this in the future, right? collect more data, monitor the situation, come back to this because it was a little red flag, a little puzzle. But, you know, you, you, especially when I was in graduate school, I, again, it just became quite apparent that Jews were disproportionately powerful in academia and in government, uh, in the media, et cetera. But 
I sort of moved from being a libertarian to being a conservative and especially, to be quite frank, a neocon. That, that was the kind of conservatism that I liked. I never was attracted to the Bill Buckley kind of stuff. I always thought oh, these people are pandering to Christians and it's lowbrow and their magazines are hideously ugly. Uh, and it just it just reeked of compromise and and what we now call cuckoldry even then and bad taste. But I did like the New Criterion magazine, which was a neocon cultural journal. And I did read commentary. I subscribed to that for a long time because they had very high quality articles. And uh, there were th Jewish thinkers that I liked on politics like Hannah Arendt first and then later Leo Strauss. And at that time, I sort of thought, okay, well, there are Jews on both sides of these issues, and Jews can be allies. And I, and I think that that's the position that most intelligent, responsible, well-to-do Gentiles believe or hope. They hope that that's the case. They really hope that they can be allies because they're terrified of them being enemies. I was certainly terrified of the damage these people could do. I saw it with Patrick Buchanan. You know, you know occasionally they would single out people and destroy mm -hmm. them just to flex their power. And it's like, yeah, these people are frightening and uh, irrational in their, in their anger. I saw this with the Jewish polemics about Martin Heidegger. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just sort of rhetorical thuggery and bloodlust. You know, you could see that these were not rational people uh, when it came to certain things. And so you, you think, okay, well, they're dangerous, but they could be powerful allies. And you want to believe that they can be powerful allies because they're so dangerous as enemies. And that's the kind of, I think, copium, <laughs> delusion, wishful thinking that people like Musk have engaged in for years because Musk is a smart guy. He's a rocket scientist. He's a billionaire. He's had dealings with them at close quarters for decades now. He's noticed all the same things I noticed about them when I was in academia in the world of ideas. He, he's noticed these same things in the world of business and the world of ideas. He's not a dumb guy. He's smarter than me. If, if he's smarter than me, he knows this stuff. Okay, that's, that's my sort of bedrock op operating assumption. So what keeps them in line is fear and hope. And really for me, what got me to question, you know, going along with them or thinking that they could be potential allies is just enough exposure. And then finally reading the culture of critique. Uh, and mm -hmm. the culture of critique put it all together for me. And I realized, oh, God, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. but then but what happens when people have that realization uh, is they think, oh, God, it's too awful. I well, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. And so they'll go back to thinking, well, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can say. We're trapped with a madman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's nothing we can do about it. People can uh, draw that conclusion. So I, I don't think that what's happened here is they have been red-pilled by our plucky little movements 
truths because they know the truth that we, the same truth that we know. I think the influence that we probably have had is the additional red pills, the, the kind of things that you get from um, Kevin McDonald, where you just come to the realization that this is unsustainable, that left-wing Jews and right-wing Jews are united in their hostility to any kind of European identitarianism. And it's only European identity, European self-assertion that will save European people. And But, but the, the other thing that I think we've influenced them on is just courage. When you see somebody, who, and I, I'm going to uh, talk about Keith Woods, uh, for instance, Keith Woods has been responded to by Elon. He's helped drive this conversation. Keith Woods has been out there on Twitter for years now. He's kept it classy, but it's been pretty hardcore stuff about the JQ the whole time. And I think that when people encounter that and they see some, who's this Irish guy, you know, who's this Irish guy, this, this Irish nobody who's, he's articulate and he's brave what that's the thing that I think is is getting people like this to take that step. It's bravery is sometimes contagious. And I, I put a thing up on Elon's new Twitter <laughs> late last year that got my Normie account canceled on Elon's new Twitter. It was a clip from my piece on Kanye West. In your heart, you know Ye's right. And basically I said that everybody knows what's going on. If you're in a prominent position, everybody knows about Jewish power. The reason why people don't speak out about it is lack of solidarity amongst white, influential whites. Because all of these people are trying to slither to the top of the greasy pole of the status system in our society. Even though they know that you're a truth teller and you're being brave, often they're unscrupulous enough to use that against you. And so you, you speak too much truth and these people will, even though they know you're telling the truth and they, in their heart of hearts, might uh, admire you, they're unscrupulous enough to try and tear you down with it. It's just lack of solidarity amongst whites, lack of solidarity, lack of value, you know, placed on truth and, you know, a kind of a hopelessness and, and the assumption that, the, this, that we're always going to be in a Jewish dominated system. So you might as well jockey for their favor. That's the kind of stuff that's going on. I said, in fact, you'd have to be crazy in a system like that to speak the truth about Jewish power. Enter Kanye West. I, I did an audio of that. A little video of that was made from that audio clip. It was put on Twitter and I was banned from Twitter under Elon's free speech regime. But, you know, I, I think by pointing out the, the necessity of courage, either courage or craziness, right, to get, get out there, that, and, and by showing that, people in our cause have probably subtly given courage to more mainstream people to do this. And if enough mainstream voices are united in this, then Jewish solidarity can't defeat them. And now I'm seeing Elon Musk, Candace Owens, and Tucker Carlson 
and to some extent, Charlie Kirk stepping out and saying these things. And they're looking around and they're very, very attentive to social cues because these are people pleasers. They're media people. They're they're business people. They're attentive to this. They, they're looking at their balance sheets, social and, and financial. They're nervous about this, but they look and they see that other people like them are doing this and the courage is infectious. I'll say one more thing and then I'll, I'll pass it to David. Years ago, I had this idea of a project called Stand Your Ground. Stand Your Ground was basically this. I wanted to find a slick lawyer who could map out all the stages that people go through to get canceled once they say something a little too true about race or the Jewish question. And you see these things happen, you know, a TV weatherman or a, the wife of a minor official or somebody will say something like this. And then they're in the beams of the ADL and then, you know, they, they cuck, they, they back down and, and they're destroyed. And I thought, you know, the reason why these Jewish groups go after people like this with knives is because they're afraid that if anybody stands up, that courage is contagious and that if one person stands his ground, other people will, will, will follow suit. And therefore, these people have to be singled out, isolated, and destroyed every time they emerge. And I thought, what if we had a really plausible advocate who, as soon as this happens, can find their way to get a phone call with these people and say, I will be in your office in 24 hours. I want to sit down and I want to explain to you how to handle this crisis that in a way that's most advantageous to you. You know, come in as like a free crisis management person and then basically say, stand your ground. Show that cucking doesn't help and that you will win new friends by standing your ground and you're not going to, and not doing it won't help. It would just be great if we had the ability to do that because now we're seeing on a very large stage how contagious courage is. And you, know, you can tell that other people, you know that other people are looking at this and they're saying, it's safe. It's safe to talk about this. It, you know, that what's been happening with Israel and Gaza is making it safe. Uh, the ban the ADL campaign was making it safe. It's getting safer and safer to have this conversation. And this is why the ADL is absolutely freaking out. So what are your thoughts, David? Yeah, so first point is that right now we have no real hard data on how people get red-pilled. We have anecdotal evidence, but it's never been properly analyzed. And it's going to skew towards, you know, there's people, I think a red-pill journey would differ based upon where people are coming from, like libertarian, communist, neocon, what age they were, their intelligence level, socioeconomic bracket, et cetera, et cetera. And we all skew more towards the libertarian angle, so that's going to skew our anecdote. So I think one of the things we could do would be a poll where we we ask people how they got red pilled. I think you know, and I'm not sure how much you want me to reveal, but that might be in the works. We're going to ask people how long did it take you to get red pilled? Was a typical red pill journey? What were your major stumbling blocks, like the food argument or God thinks that's mean? Blah blah blah. We're all individuals. And find what people get, what their stumbling blocks are, 
and also how long it takes. Because right now, everyone loves to speculate, is Elon Musk and Charlie Kirk acting in good faith or bad faith? I don't, we can't know because we have no evidence. We just have to go on what we know and what we assume. And, you know, like you said, Greg, well, they're smart, so they have to know it. But I'm a pretty smart cookie. And I got red-pilled around 2010 or so after college while trying to go into the Air Force officer program while working at JCPenney's and reading Julius Evola and then going on to these online forums during the archaic age of the internet and getting red-pilled on Germanic preservation forums before I hopped on World of Warcraft. And my red-pill process took me about a good year. And one of my major stumbling blocks was the whole thing, and maybe the Zionist Jews can be friends. And that, it took, I mean, I had to accept the Jewish question and kicking and screaming. It took about a three to six months for me to get over that little, that little compromise and just say they're all a problem. So I don't know. You want to, these people, we have to, we're very fixated on politics. I'm a political animal. Elon Musk is political, but he's more of a businessman and an entrepreneur and a tech guy and just a pure optist. So he will have a different perspective on it. So we don't know. I think once we start to psychologically profile people like, and we can start psychologically profiling leaders, curling this data, we can start narrowing in on saying, I think there's say an 80% chance that he's acting in good faith, 20% bad faith. These are some possible stomach blocks we need to deal with him. Also apply it to this normal people we're trying to target in our everyday lives. And I think that would be very useful and it could really put to end this ongoing argument of who's acting in good faith or bad faith. I will say I was there at the Graper Wars when we roasted Charlie Kirk. And I think mm. eventually after Waukesha, Waukesha kind of was his moment where I think he realized that maybe we aren't just a bunch of edgelords. Maybe we have a point. I was going to say, I think of, of all the, the public figures who have been speaking out courageously uh, of late, I think Charlie Kirk is probably someone who wasn't aware of you know, all the, the intricacies and profundities of the JQ, but he is becoming more and more aware of it because of people spamming his replies on, on Twitter or in his uh, his speeches or does he do streams, like that sort of like that sort of stuff. I, I think that he might actually be a person who because you know not not long ago, I think it was only a week ago, that he posted a picture of himself at the Wailing Wall and he's you know repeating the line, I will bless those uh, and God will bless those who bless Israel. Um, so I think that, yeah, he's... Uh, Everybody knew what happened. He got the call, yeah. right? We all, it's or, like, or, you know, he's just a genuine Christian believer, yeah, a born-again evangelical who does genuinely believe that. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. And that's why it's so difficult. His, his you mentioned, you used the word, his character arc. I think his character arc kind of has the, the shape of a roller coaster. He has a lot of <laughs> ups and downs. Yeah. Listen, as someone who has had to deal with the CQ myself, as someone who is very familiar with uh, many forms of Christianity, but in particular American evangelical Christianity, because I uh, grew up with that, the the JQ is hard. The JQ, all the World War II stuff, it is very very hard. It's a very difficult red pill to swallow. And so, whereas Musk and some others, because they are involved in, you know, upper echelon stuff, they, they, they walk a bit down the halls of power. They are titans of industry. And so, of course, they're in, they're in close contact with Jewish power. Of course, they know. Um, but where, whereas someone like 
Charlie Kirk, I think, you know, I, I do think that he has been presented with some challenging material by our guys on many different occasions. And that's why he's having this up and down journey. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're right about that. I do think he's pretty knowledgeable about it. Just looking at the major donors who come to him, all the pressures that he's been under to so much pro-Israel stuff that they've done. Uh, it's all Israel all the time at TPUSA's. <laughs> and, and a so, lot of his uh, earlier yeah. stuff too. I think a lot of his talking points, all of his stuff, I think that was scripted from other people. Um, oh yeah. You know, that line about America being a placeholder of ideas and the only real, you know, nation on earth is Israel. Every other nation is, especially America is just that like, that's, that's, you know, someone writing that for him. The, a lot of yeah. his stuff I think was like, you know, not entirely his own brain working through things <laughs> yeah. in scripts. And now that he has to, now that he has a bit more independence, maybe, or he's being a bit braver, uh, we are seeing him express some of his own actual thoughts on things. Yeah. So I have a statement here, uh, points for discussion from Alba Rising. I'm seeing a lot more cynicism about Elon's genuineness from the right. And although it's understandable to be cautious, we are potentially going to miss a low risk, high reward opportunity to have a powerful elite on our side for the first time since Henry Ford, which is the title of the title of the stream. Is he the new Henry Ford? We have to give Elon a chance and we have to keep nudging him gently in our direction. I, I would agree with that. Elon Musk, like Henry Ford, uh, was a car manufacturer, right? That's one of Elon's many hats. He is a car manufacturer. History's rhyming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's this hilarious story. I don't know if it's true. Or an not. aviator next, like Charles Lindbergh. Yes, that. Well, he. <laughs> we have a rocket man. He's Lindbergh and Ford at the same time. Out with aviation, in with rockets, right? He's Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh two, three, and four. Yeah, yeah. It's literally me. <laughs> so the. Um, there's this, this story, and it, I should have confirmed it, because almost all stories having to do with anything connected with Semitism or anti-Semitism have something wrong about them, something false. But there's a story that I was told that every Model T Ford came with a copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in the glove compartment. Maybe that was a joke, or maybe it was true. It's a hilarious thought. In five years... I want every Tesla to have a copy of the culture of critique stuck in the glove compartment. I think that would be uh, an, an amazing timeline to live in, and, and it would definitely be history rhyming. Uh, but Henry Ford was an industrial giant. He was a brilliant man, and he was very aware of the JQ, and he had a media platform, the Dearborn Independent, and he uh, had a research team working there to create this series of articles that was published under the title, The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. It's, it still stands up today. Uh, Kevin McDonald wrote an extensive essay on The International Jew, basically from his own updated point of view, and talked about how it was very solid, quite valid even to this day. I, I just think it's interesting that an industrial giant like Ford of the last century could be 
that red pill. And of course, uh, you know, I'll give Richard Hanania one shout out here for one of his cringe tweets. He was talking about if you're an anti-Semite, that probably means you're poor and ignorant. Mm. Uh, poor and ignorant, like Henry Ford. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah. exactly. Like so many kings throughout European history. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Poor and ignorant, like Elon Musk. That's just an, an absurd You know, it's, it's line. funny. Yes. It's interesting because I... I wrote a whole thing about Elon and Twitter and it's again, talking about roller coasters. It's been rather up and down since <laughs> Elon took over still so many of our guys, including you, you, Greg Johnson, haven't had your accounts reinstated. The bans were for no reason. And if Elon is, you know, always having an eye cast on his, his thing, his little project here, and he is responding to random nobodies, he has to have seen our replies to him saying, well, you know, you were, you just posted, we, we, we are 100% dedicated to freedom of speech and everyone is welcome on this platform. Okay. Well then please reinstate these accounts that have been banned for no legitimate reason. He must yeah. have seen those. He must have seen at least, you know, two or three of those and still nothing's been done. We don't know if he's playing 4d chess. You know, he had the, he had that whole, you know, struggle snuggle, a struggle session with the Sanhedrin a few weeks ago or a few months ago right. where, you know, they all basically, all these Jews lectured him and he had to tell them what they want to hear. And then, you know, then he comes out and says these things, these wonderful things that we addressed at the top of the show tonight. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he pays a price for it because just hours, days after, uh, you know, 24 hours after the post that we cited earlier, well, now all these companies, almost all of them who ha have Jew uh, Jewish CEOs, they're all pulling their ads from X. And then Media Matters does this hit piece. And now Elon Musk is going to be rolling out the big guns. And apparently he's suing them with this massive, he said, on, on Monday, we are going to unleash a nuclear you know, lawsuit on Media Matters. That's going to cost money. And like, I was very suspicious of Elon. I have been, I don't think... There's things about him and, and technology, his, his view on technology, Neuralink, uh, AI, things like that, that just as someone who's kind of like a Luddite, I just have an instinctive aversion to. But I'll tell you what, lately, I've been tempted to sign up for a blue check and pay for X premium, especially because they're all, you know, all these companies are pulling their ads and I want to make sure this yeah. platform uh, yeah. stays on its feet because there is good things happening there. And I know I can already hear some people in the audience saying it's not real life. The internet is not real life. It's just a stupid app. I get No, that. it drives policy. It affects it, people's exactly, lives. That, exactly. Yeah. The stuff that happens, the conversations, the, the comments that go viral, these, I'm sorry, I wish it weren't so. I wish we could all be having real life conversations and I wish we had real power and we were making you know, we were in real places and, and writing on pen and paper. I, I, I totally get that. With but quills. The stuff happens, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the stuff that happens online is a part of reality. And the stuff that happens on X is a part of reality. And stuff that happens on X has way more weight in reality than a Telegram post, for example. Or, Absolutely. Uh, or a Gab post. post, you know. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. I mean, it just to see the list of all the companies that started pulling their ads, um, 
I mean, once again, though, it's the mental breakdown and it's the it's the uh, heads I win, tells you lose thing. They're just confirming once again that Jews have all this disproportionate power. And if you say anything that, that they don't like, they will attack you. They will be antagonistic towards you. Yeah. Um, like like Michael Rappaport was on X. He posted a video of him walking down the streets of New York. And he's saying, I can tell you, me and all my Jewish friends, we're making a list. We know who's being naughty or who's being nice. We know that all you people who aren't supporting Israel or are staying silent or are supporting Palestine, we're making a list of all of you. And the next time you need a loan or you're going to come and ask for this, that or the other, we're not going to help you. So, again, he's confirming that, yeah. oh, it turns out Jews do act as a monolithic and, and nepotistic group that pulls strings and pushes their agendas and, and controls money. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's just, um, actually, guys, let me just pause here for a second. This Seinfeld-like magic is happening. Suddenly, the Ayatollah, Morgoth, and Carl Thorburn are, are dropping by. So let me add these guys in, and then we'll continue the conversation. Uh, Ayatollah, welcome. Thanks for having me. Have you got like a sort of a, a studio reaction sound on cue? Like I've, I've used that on my streams before when I've welcomed guests, actually the kind of cliched hackneyed, you know, studio, you know, studio audience applause and whatever. But anyway, um, I just yeah, think that's uh, the sound of traffic outside my window or something, but yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> we'll go with it. You know, yeah, I should I'm get a studio. My best Seinfeld baseline. Boom, 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 boom. It's Kramer. Yes. Any port in a storm. Yeah. Um, we live in interesting times, don't we? I've uh, been enjoying listening to the discussion. I think the Henry Ford point is very apt. You know, hopefully it goes a bit better this time than it ultimately did there. But it's, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the sort of the, the car manufacturer thing hadn't even registered with me. But I, I kind of a point that occurred to me when I was listening to this is like, um, when, when Musk's takeover of Twitter was first mooted in the spring of 2022. I mean, I won't get into this too deeply now because I'm not even welcomed on very briefly, I'm sure. But um, basically, when this was mooted, I, I kind of said at the time, well, if anything is going to kind of start the... And I'm not saying this is definitely happening now, but look, we live in interesting times, so I'll say that much. If anything is going to lead to the process via which Jewish power is kind of broken down, it could well be a very sort of like a... Like a... Like a a wealthy, influential white man who is too big to take down, who, whether wittingly or not, kind of gets into this, like probably not knowing the full implications. And I suspect Musk didn't. But by God, has he had a learning curve with the way the ADL have gone after Twitter and everything else and the way they continue to after his latest transgression. And that's given us a lot of, you know, new red pills, the way they went after Kanye West, the way they went after Twitter's advertising, the way they're doing it now. It's very illustrative of um, everything that we say. You know, there's been a, it's been a sort of six weeks of teachable moments since everything that happened on the October the 7th, doesn't it? But yeah, I said at the time, if it's going to, it's going to happen anyway, it may well come from some, yeah, some kind of like white, like wealthy white person who's too big to take down, just go and say, well, I'll buy Twitter and I'll institute free speech because, you know, like just honest kind of white principles, European principles of fair play. And everyone gets, everyone gets their say and everything else. And they, they, they blunder into that. It's a minefield, not understanding yeah, but that's very, very dangerous to the people that hold power in a collective sense. And they get into it, and then who knows where it leads. And we are kind of seeing that. You know, we are... The, the thing I find most remarkable about all of this, and I'll just say this quickly, is that I posted about this on Telegram earlier. 
remember that this what we're seeing now this all began with hamas you know infiltrating israel and launching attacks which led to the deaths of about 1200 people it was supposedly the bloodiest day in the history of the state of israel you'd think they'd be able to count on worldwide sympathy They've had the sympathy of Zionist-occupied Western governments. That sympathy isn't there in great abundance from the populations those governments rule over. You know, opinion poll this week, Israel's only got 32% support among the American public. I mean, that's America with all the evangelicals. That's quite incredible. I don't even know what the numbers are in European countries or what they would be if they've been researched. I'm sure they probably have. But six weeks into that, well, less than six weeks into this, what we've got, you know, rather than a load of sympathy and solidarity, you've got the biggest political pundit in America the richest man in the world and normally very reliable fellow Semite in Charlie Kirk coming out and saying, yeah, Jews are behind the whole anti-white agenda. Maybe some people will think that like, oh, did, did Mossad or Shin Bet or whichever would have been responsible for it have an idea that something might have been in the offing from Hamas and did they let it happen because it would have given them the pretext to ethnically cleanse Gaza and get rid of two and a half million Arabs? I wouldn't totally rule that out. I think it possibly wasn't the case, but who knows? I can tell you now that this was not part of the plan. It can't, can't have been part of the plan to have Tucker Carlson Absolutely. and Elon yeah. Musk and Charlie Kirk and Candace, Owen going, Candace Owens going, yeah, the Jews are behind all this, and it's really malevolent. It's incredible. I think that's, that's part of their, their, their sort of unhinged reaction is that they're, they're like a jilted lover. It's like yeah. they cannot believe that they're, 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 they don't have, the, they don't have the, the support. It's like, wait, wait a second. but. Yeah. You, you saw, are in love with me. You are, you are mine. Oh wait, yeah. no, no. He's your, your, your man's going, going. He's going MGTOW. He's going his own way. Yeah, yeah. I saw, yeah. A, uh, Go ahead, I saw a post, a view posted from 4chan or somewhere where it said that basically kind of correlated the Jewish matriarchy with their values because it basically our race that acts like a woman, where it's always somebody else's fault. They're neurotic. Mm -hmm. They accuse. Yeah. There's projection. They're complete. They're borderline personality disorder. They're abusive. Oh, the they are a very <laughs> feminine people, and they think that no accountability. That logic games are as reason, are reason, and it's not. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that when I was conservative and hopefully philo-Semitic, that but at the same time living in fear of these people, that it's like being in an abusive relationship, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, you're, you're carried along by hope, but you're, the whole thing is poisoned by fear. They have an abusive relationship to our societies and we need to get out of this abusive relationship. So let's bring Morgoth on, uh, Morgoth, welcome to the show. Hello again there. Am I coming through? Okay. Yes. So I've fallen behind a little bit on how on the latest breaking news. I was busy doing a video and all day, and then I've just I, I went out for dinner, and I've just come back in, and I thought I would jump in the stream, but I have I have fired off a couple of banger banger tweets on on, on the issue. Share them, um, and and what I what the person who popped up. So I can't really speak to the rest of the discussion because I'm just in. But a, a person who the Ayatollah will be familiar with is a disgusting person called David Aranovich. Um, and he's been out with the begging bowl uh, doing doing that routine today on Twitter or on yesterday, where basically they're going to have some kind of rally. Um, yeah, okay, well, he, Ayatollah's going to have more to say on this thing. But, but um, the... the, the 
what he's been doing is saying the, the Jews are out there and they are scared right now and they need your support. And you'd think that would all be well and good if if the, the normy kind of the mainstream narrative on how these things play out would be, you know, that would be fine. But the problem is, I mean, I did an article a long time ago on David Aronovich because he was, he was, I can't remember, it's a long time, it's on the original Morgoth's Review blog, but the long and the short of it was that he was talking about grooming gangs and he was saying that the grooming gangs should, um, th th there's a danger here because it's, it's feeding into far-right rhetoric. And he also wrote a Times article in which the headline literally said, uh, something somebody could could uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it was something along the lines of white interests in quotes can never be uh, legitimate or correct or okay or, or something. Defending like that. White, interests white interests can never, never be right. right. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Um, so he's now coming out. He also had a piece in the Guardian titled "Enjoy Diversity." It's the yeah. norm. It's so it's a it's a part and parcel. We've always had diversity. It makes our country great. Enjoy and, and, diversity and what, or else. And what I thought was interesting about this, about about because he, I think he's actually typical. I think he's typical of a liberal Jew in the intelligentsia, who does it. It's like they are completely and utterly uh, incapable of showing empathy. Uh, it seems to me, As so, some of them, you know, I'm bearing in mind, I'm in the UK. There's people going to jail for years on end for, so so some of them, some of the time seem or can be perceived as seeing allegedly <laughs> that they do not have much empathy. And I'm just trying to cover me back. <laughs> For laws which they may or may not have been complicit in bringing about. And at any rate, now it comes out and it's like, oh, well, they are scared. And it's so obvious. And they've all got this long trail uh, this kind of long paper trail of articles and anti-white headlines and kind of contempt, you know, contempt for girls from un untrendy towns in the north who who've been subject to the most disgusting uh, abuses you can imagine. And and it's it's kind of reminded me. I, I, I did a little tweet this morning where. It kind of reminds me of um, what's happening now, just general. I'm just taking that as an example of something much larger, which is whether it's Elon Musk or whether it's Charlie Kirk or whether it's Candace Owens or all of the, the bigger the bigger names and the, where the discussion's going on about this. But all of it has something in common. And it reminds me of um, Once Upon a Time in the West, where you've got Charles Bronson, harmonica just following henry fonda around and kind of playing the harmonica in the background <laughs> and, and, That's and, brilliant. and and, and it's, it's kind of like henry fonda has lived this really brutal life he's killed a ton of people he's done all of these terrible things and it's as if sort of karma or or, or justice is going to be there and he's tormented you know and it, it's like when, whenever he says whenever henry fonda frankie's called asks Charles Bronson, like, who are you? What do you want? He just gives them the name of dead men, men who Henry Fonda's killed. And it's kind of like that. And it's like, why why don't you help us out? Why don't you show empathy? And it's just like the great replacement, grooming gangs, hate speech laws. And then, and then they're kind of like putting their hands over their ears and running mm. away. And it's, it, but I'm sorry, but it is the case. There is, there is a reason why this is happening 
right now. There's a it's it's not for nothing. You can't just say, oh well, it's all a bunch of Nazis and anti-Semites, as David Aranovich did just a few hours ago. And I've I've responded to that one as well. You're gonna have to do something, you're gonna have to change how you behave, or you will carry on in this destructive mode. But well, I don't I don't think they can change. But in and in a way, there's this kind of sort of understanding how deep the hole that they've dug for themselves actually is. And I think that's that's the, the interesting part of the discussion where we are now. Can I just well, say very quickly, uh, I actually, I mean, on, on the subject of the Once Upon a Time in the West thing, I've, I've got to be honest, I've not seen the film, but I mean, slightly more lowbrow example. I did a thing, did a post on Telegram this morning, picking up on David Aronovich's pleas for solidarity, juxtaposed with the screenshots of the Defending White Interest Can Never Be Right article and that uh, actually fuck you and your quote white countries end quote tweet from 2017. They were within mm. days of each other. That 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 came that tweet came before that article, actually. I don't know whether the, the tweet the Twitter exchange had any part and influence in the article, I don't know. But but I tweeted that saying he's asking for our solidarity with a clip from the, the British sitcom Peep Show <laughs> where Jeff has been, um, Jeff, the character you see in the little clip, uh, had been helping the, the protagonist try and sort of come up with a, pro- a work proposal to combine two departments and it was a nightmare and he made this proposal and in his stress, the main protagonist, Mark, just said like, that's ridiculous and humiliated him in front of everybody. And then when he couldn't think of anything else and he was due to present it, he goes like, mate, I don't suppose you've got that original proposal you have by any chance. He goes, yeah, of course, mate. And he just pulls his middle finger out of the bag and goes, yeah, there you go, there it is. And it's like that kind of satisfaction. It's, you know, like, um, <laughs> well, like, oh, you want solidarity now, do you? Yeah, you've been running up quite a tab. So, yeah. Since since October 7th, it's just been this recurring theme. It's been, it's been actually boring because it's just so expected that all of these Jews that get on x or on their talk shows whatever asking for the solidarity asking for white people america to to give them everything they need asking for people to attend pro-israel marches calling for the deportations of all of these bipoc people that up until you know a month ago they were well happy to have in uh, come countries because Let's not be fooled by this lie that it's just the left-wing Jews. There are quote-unquote right-wing Jews who are in favor of mass migration and the diversification of our countries. Uh, In many cases, they see it as a boon to the GDP. Uh, Prager, Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro famously say they don't care about the uh, demographics of the country, they don't care about the so the racial the makeup of the country, as long as it's the, the values, right? Uh, it's all about the values. Um, so right-wing Jews are just as much a part of this as well. Traditional rabbis are okay with this, and, and they applaud it, and they uh, look on uh, with glee because of various prof- uh, prophetic reasons. Um, and so there's just this, it happens again and again and again since October 7th that all of these Jewish people are now asking for solidarity and they're asking for help. And they're, you know, will you hide me? Uh, stand up for Israel. Uh, we got to deport yeah. these people. And every single time <laughs> you just have to dig through their Twitter history or their, you know, previous column pieces. And without fail, there is always an anti-white post or an anti-white article or an anti-nationalism opinion piece or something, something 
uh, uh, there's a there's a snarky you know tweet about the benefits of diversity. There's an insult to someone who uh, just wants their country to be like it was 30 years ago without fail. And it, it got to the point where today I said uh, I, I invented a, a new scientific law. I invented Pox's law, which is basically that the more a Jew begs for the support of white people to save him from these hordes of angry brown people the higher the likelihood that he has said some disparaging things about white people in the past and that he was pro-immigration and pro-diversity for most of his career. It's just, it's so predictable now. I was was riffing off that same idea with the hide me meme. You know, translation, would you hide me? It translates as, would you save me from the savages that I have inflicted upon your country as ethnic warfare against you animals. It's like, well, gee, when you put it nicely, you know, absolutely not. I mean, this, this is just karma. This is absolute karma. And uh, they, they really don't like this. They don't like being confronted with the, the karmic consequences of their foolish and not just foolish, their malevolent policies. It's as if their vaunted IQs aren't so hard, aren't, aren't so high, you know, to think that they didn't see this coming. Did they really not see this coming? Because we've been saying this for years. And the counter-jihadist movement, their entire shtick was basically to, to, to beg Jews to take the pedal, their foot off the pedal of pausing Europe with immigrants because, gee, these people might be harmful to you. And of course, we know that only your interests really matter in our political system. Uh, They don't seem all that smart, honestly. Let's bring Carl Thorburn in, though. Carl's been waiting patiently behind the scenes, too. So, Carl, welcome. Hey, Greg. Hey, everybody. Yeah, I was just thinking about how, like, the last few days has really been a lesson for people who think that it's possible to predict the future. You know, like if if you, there's so many people who get depressed because they think that everything is going to just go along a track, but every so often something happens that's so out of left field that it really does change the paradigm. And I think that's, that's what we're going to see over the next several years that it, I think even from the perspective of somebody, you know, 10 years ago, what's happening today would be the ultimate white pill. And I think the same is going to be true in a two, two three years from now. It's, you know, it's just, there, there's going to be so many white pills as more and more whites sort of internalize the possibility of whites identifying as a group in a positive way and also um, acting in defense of their own group. And I think that it's, you know, even from like a, just a purely libertarian, everybody love each other, get along perspective, which is, you know, of course, we all know that's naive. But even taking it that, you know, from that route, which is what Elon Musk is doing, it's it gives us such an amazing springboard to begin the transition to sort of a political realism for whites, you know, as they kind of start to come to the realization that, you know, you can't. I mean, you could probably do it for like maybe three or four years, but realistically, long-term balance of power between races is just not totally, you know, it's completely off the table. It's not possible anywhere. And so I think, you know, I'm just super white-pilled. And, you know, the other thing I was going to say is it's kind of similar. Like there's a there's a term in um, evolution 
if you're studying evolution, they, they call it punctuated equilibrium, which is where organisms don't evolve gradually. What, what happens is that they essentially stay very much the same for many years, possibly even millions of years. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this huge leap in rapidity of uh, change. And they call it punctuated equilibrium. And that's sort of the sense that I get with, um, you know, social trends also is that, you know, we've had period of, you know, really since 9-11, I guess, where culture hasn't really changed too much with possibly the exception of woke, like, woke, you know, the introduction of woke and, and everybody being offended. That was kind of a, a change from uh, the, the 2000s, you know, had, had the a period where everybody was um, fine with racist humor to a degree. But I think we're about to, you know, we're in for another big cultural shock soon. And it, it's, it's really fun to, to be in the midst of it and kind of see where it's headed. I was just going to say, it's, it's actually really interesting what uh, Carl said there about evolution, because um, I've added a video about the, I've used this analogy before about the Kakapo, Kakapo parrot, that once it could fly um, and it could fend for itself and it ended up on New Zealand. And it, uh, I think that some of the other larger predators died off. And it did end up, you know, it, it ended up where it was just this fat, slow, lazy parrot that um, it, it all of the fruit just fell off the trees. It lost the ability to fly. I think it went almost blind. It was just enough that it could sort of sniff out a few berries here and there. It couldn't defend itself. And then eventually, of course, um, rats and ferrets and cats were introduced to the island and it nearly went extinct. And I've often used that analogy before. I used it on an older video about uh, sort of civic nationalists and these these people in Britain, meaning meaning our group, who who are kind of wedded deeply to these ideas of uh, take people as they come and liberalism and individualism and things. But another another one one of the things that I've been interested in, I will bring this back, is, is Schindler's List, where the Schindler's List. I would say, marked the high point of the amount of sympathy and compassion that the Jewish people had in the West, in, in a sort of cultural, in the zeitgeist. And I think it had that effect on them. I think there's something to be said that when you have that amount, that degree of social capital, that degree of respect, there was like a kind of magic glow that came after that movie was released. Then it is gonna it is gonna have an effect. It is gonna you are gonna get the kakapo effect, where you're kind of reduced to this kind of slumbering, lazy, fat parrot. And in terms of an ecosystem, nowhere better can that now be seen on Twitter, where Elon Musk has let in the rats and the weasels and the creatures that have to scratch. <laughs> All these people from Telegram, you know, frog friends for frogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and they've got no defense. That they 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 don't understand the dialectic game. They don't have the comebacks. And as I just said before, there they've got this huge paper trail of guilt leading yeah. straight back to them. There's a wonderful tweet by Joel Davis. He said that Twitter is the new 4chan. Just get all your normie friends on here and they'll be radicalized. 
mm. uh, post haste. I, I think that's a, a very, very valid point. And I, I love your analogy about the uh, about the, the the fat waddling parrots. Of course, the same thing happened with pigeons that landed on Mauritius and turned into giant, flightless, slow dodos that were easily extinguished by uh, predators when they came along. Uh, we have a number of questions here, and so I'd like to just run through these questions with the panel and just get sort of quick answers and thoughts. So let's let's just do a sprint session through these so we don't leave anybody out because people have been very generous and kind. Gaddius has written in with 10 US dollars, another $10. Thank you very much. And he asks the question, this is up for Pox. Pox, why have the Irish been so based this year? From the protests at the beginning of the year to Keith initiating digital pogroms to Conor McGregor. Uh, this is a great question. Uh, why have the Irish been so based? And can you say a few words about uh, why Conor McGregor has just been mentioned? Yeah. Again, I'm only half Irish, so I don't want to be stepping on anyone's toes and, and making presumptions, but Ireland is important uh, for me. I keep an eye on what's going on there, and I'm in frequent, frequent contact with my Irish friends over there. Well, as far as the answer, I spoke about this in the uh, countercurrents event last spring, and Ireland was a big part of my, my speech that I gave. And I talked about how Ireland has a sort of immune system. Some of the, the, the games, some of the gaslighting, some of the accusations don't quite work on the Irish. You can't say to the Irish, well, you colonized the world, so now you have to take in all these migrants. You were a powerful empire. You did all these cruel things to all these different people, so now you're getting your just desserts. That doesn't work. The Irish are, uh, I mean, up until just a few years ago, the, the population of Ireland was 5 million. Of that 5 million, about 4 million were native Irish and the rest, you know, were some uh, foreign foreigners and things like that. Um, so it's a small population. You know, the, the, the joke is that everyone in Ireland knows each other. Um, it's an identity that is not easily destructible. It's not easily deconstructed uh, in comparison to, say, the American identity. Uh, as we see so often on X, it's so frustrating. People who try and deconstruct the British or the English identity or the French identity, or even this is happening in Italy. Uh, people are trying to deconstruct the Italian identity because a lot of European nation states are quite artificial. They were created during the 19th century and they involve the sort of forcing together of various disparate peoples. Well, that's not quite the case with the Irish. So I think... Those are really powerful arrows in their quiver, and, and that, or, or if you want another metaphor, it's it's their immune system. Um, and what's heartbreaking, though, about what's going on in Ireland, and I, when I used to make videos about these issues, I would frequently mention Ireland, and I would use you know the future tense. I would say that this will happen in Ireland. This is going to happen in Ireland. Ireland is going to be in the crosshairs. You know, the things that are happening in France and in Germany and in Britain and in Italy, the demographic destruction, the, the rapes, the terrorism, all the violence, the quality of life decreasing, all that stuff, that's going to happen in Ireland. Because even just as recently as 2018, it wasn't this bad. But Ireland has since 2018 been placed in the crosshairs and it's been so fast. The 
the the damage this this wrecking ball and i never expected it to be i never expected the irish political class to be so traitorous i never expected that it would be the irish political class that would be that would throw open the floodgates totally backstab the irish people and i also never expected that there would be quite a significant portion of irish people who would go along with it you know talking about the immune system there is a there is a double edge to that in that many irish people kind of instinctively ally with the oppressed i mean there's very little support for israel in ireland and there's a hell of a lot of support for palestine and there's obvious reasons for that um many irish people or a significant portion of you know the irish progressives want to appear more open-minded and more sophisticated and just better than the racists over in england the colonizers and that sort of thing so there is that to deal with but what happened just over the past few days that sort of really exposed the this double edge is that um a young woman named Ashley Murphy had been uh, murdered by a Slovakian gypsy and his trial was this week. And, you know, this, this young woman, she had her whole life ahead of her, attractive, lovely, played the violin. You know, this is just one of many, one of Ireland's many victims now since, since all these NGOs and since the political class have just completely destroyed the country. I mean, crazy things are happening. They are turning care homes, you know, uh, nursing homes into refugee centers. They're, 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 you know, filling care homes with suspicious foreign men. <laughs> they are, we've had the case of a, a refugee who gruesomely murdered two gay Irish men. And before he killed them, he asked if they were Irish and if they were sure, as if, you know, he specifically wanted to kill Irishmen as well, not just gay men, but Irish gay men. So, uh, Dublin has completely been been destroyed. I'm actually going to be in Ireland soon, and I'm making every effort possible to avoid Dublin. I, I don't want to go there. I, I, I saw what it was turning into a few years ago, and I know that it's got worse since. So anyway, Miss Murphy is one of just a long and growing list of victims. And most Irish people are awake to this and they are rightfully upset about it and her boyfriend made a public statement saying that it was it's just such a shame and a scandal that someone like her killer was allowed in the country because he his name is joseph pushka uh, i believe that's how you would, would pronounce his name he had a criminal history criminal charges in his home country and yet somehow he was allowed into Ireland and he was allowed social housing, free housing uh, paid by the Irish taxpayer, along with other welfare benefits, contributed nothing. I don't think he was ever employed. And then he brutally rapes and murders this young woman who was out for a, a night jog, if I remember correctly. That's when she met her demise. And so her boyfriend, after, after the trial of this man, uh, he was convicted and all that. And the boyfriend in, in, the, in the aftermath made a public statement just saying this, you know, should never have happened, basically. 
And um, he was mostly that statement was well received, but he was attacked by that portion of the Irish progressive population who actually called him names like scumbag and racist and arsehole. I mean, think of that. Yeah. It's just terrible. Absolutely terrible. Well, the contrast here, though, the contrast here is so striking to the father of the white boy who was beaten to death by a a mob of feral blacks, a pack of blacks Mm. in Nevada. And he he basically cucked about his his son's murder. The the family, the Murphy family and this boyfriend, uh, her boyfriend, is that as far as I don't think the family has even said anything. I think they've been quite silent. They just probably want to you know, have some peace and quiet and, and privacy. But yeah, it's quite impressive. And it's rare that, you know, the survivor, the, the, the those left behind uh, in the event of these kind of horrific attacks has actually taken a strong stance and said, this is wrong. This shouldn't have happened. And these people shouldn't be in my country. Um, usually, I, we have, you know, in the UK, there's the nudge department, I think it's called. We, there's been, that, that's been kind of exposed that, um, the, the, the government has this rapid response team that tries to make sure that, you know, victims, families say the right things, that they don't say anything that might uh, increase racial tensions. So they're kind yeah. of doing a script. We and need a rapid response team to, uh, flip that script basically. Well, the, the suspicion is that if they deviate from that script, you know, they might not get uh, assistance from the state or legal representation or something. I don't know. But, you know, we see this time and time again. But in this case, you know, it didn't happen. The opposite happened. Um, this this man said the actual truth and he was attacked by some by some people, by his by his kith and kin. Unfortunately, Gary Arkins was one of them, wasn't he? He's been kind of not doxxed because his information was all out there, but people figured out who he was. Yeah, Gary Arkins uh, was the guy's name. Yeah, yeah the uh, I believe he was a was he a Hurley player or um... something like that? Yeah, and a school teacher yeah. as well. I mean, he. Oh God. That that's testament. Yeah, that's testament to how far the programming has gone. That the Pavlovian response of somebody like that, who's got these kind of aspirations of compliance and status, the kind of things you talked about a little bit will you know they'll say like you know does anyone did anyone tell him to shut up this is the you know did anyone tell him to shut his racist mouth or whatever it was he said Mm -hmm. this being the guy who yeah you know his his girlfriend was slaughtered by some gypsy yeah well then then the the good thing though is the talking about people who have been speaking up and speaking with courage is that conor mcgregor has just gone off uh over the past few days and including in the aftermath of this uh, trial and he said some very strong and very based uh, statements on X. Um, posted them. Um, I saw. I saw. I clicked on one where he's saying uh, Joseph Pushka and anybody who supports him should be like tortured or yeah, <laughs> torn tortured limb from limb. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I clicked uh, on it and I found he he deleted it. But I thought he does do Conor that. McGregor. I want to address some one thing yeah. about that yeah. because. Uh, I follow McGregor um, on X and I, I hardly ever see anything that he posts. I don't think he uses Twitter very often. And it looks like it's just to promote, you know, various brands and image and things like that. And so he actually is prone to when he does tweet something about current events, 
he deletes those tweets after a few hours or a day or so. I don't think it's because he cucks. I think it's because he he just doesn't leave up, you know, statements about current events. Um, and even if if because he's never he's never retracted anything. He's never made a public apology. He's never followed up with a tweet, you know, begging for mercy. He just speaks his mind and then you know a few hours later or a day later uh, deletes what he said. Um, and in any case, though, I mean, what he what he posts gets millions of views and he's one of the most famous irishmen of you know the, the 21st century uh so i just think it's another step in the right direction that someone like him is speaking about these issues and defend <clears throat> defending uh his fellow irishmen and and you know crying out against what has been done to that country which is yeah. a complete scandal just a complete yeah. and utter disgrace what's being done to ireland yeah that that is uh, that is encouraging the irish are, are a, a healthier population than the the americans and i i've got hope for them one lemon donator writes in with uh, has donated one lemon thank you very much gaddius has sent another 10 us dollars and he has a question for me greg i found an essay you wrote about the death of bin laden on counter that holds up pretty well Good on you for posting his letter to America this week. Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda seem quaint now in hindsight. What do you think of the man looking back? Uh, just to be brief, um, I, uh, I, I'd forgotten that I'd written this thing about Bin Laden. I wrote two things about him uh, when he was killed. Um, when, when it actually happened, I, when 9-11 happened, I was, I was somewhat impressed with him. Uh, and... I, I thought his letter to America was interesting. Yeah, in hindsight, a lot of that seems, it seems like ancient history. It's more than 20 years old. Uh, but he became a TikTok phenomenon recently. And when The Guardian took down the translation, I just said, well, screw these people. I'm putting the translation back up on countercurrents. Uh, of course, TikTok is now flagging the videos. But the, I thought that was a very interesting uh, event. Uh, and... At, at a certain point, what happens uh, is that um, when you have the initiative against an enemy, suddenly you're creating problems for the enemy that they have to scramble to solve. And then while they're scrambling to solve uh, the, that problem, you're, you're creating new problems for them. And I just think it's fascinating that this bin Laden thing was just thrown out there and they had to have a panic response. Uh, you know, they're, they're burning up social capital, uh, putting out fires like this bin Laden thing. And they just can't, they just can't let it slide. And I, I just think it's interesting. And I'm just waiting for the next bin Laden thing. I'm waiting for the next TikTok phenomenon to set the establishment of, you know, on, its, on its ear. Northern Powers donated two lemons. Thank you. Gaddius sends another $10 and he says to the panel, what are your, some of your favorite axioms or laws? Do you have any personal ones like conquest, second law, any organization not explicitly right-wing will become left-wing? Uh, well, um, let's just go through the panel quickly. Pox has already sort of formulated his law. And I'm just wondering if David, David, do you have any laws like that? Any maxims like that? I would say, let me think of a good one. The longer a e-fight goes on, the quicker it just degenerates into ad hominem attacks. 
Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I uh, will think of a better one. But Okay. Yeah. Um, Tala, uh, do you have uh, any maxims, political maxims? Off the top of my head, I struggle to find a way to put this into words. Do you know what, actually, Greg, there are a couple, there are a couple that I got directly from you, which I'll get onto. But before I do, um, not, to, not to appear sycophantic, genuinely, but I'll come to those. I'll save the best for last. Um, said I wasn't going to be sycophantic. Um, the first one is you can't put this into words easily, but I, th I think this is, it's instructive to put it to, this way to people that like. <laughs> they well it's the old thing they you know we don't get shut down for lying you know they don't they don't worry about flat earthers you know if you if you you know if if this if the evidence that's is a good so one i like that yeah, yeah if the evidence is so overwhelming to you as the uninitiated consider this great time and effort and resource um goes into silencing people like us they aren't doing that because we we, we perpetuate easily debunked lies so the old no smoke without fire that would be one and then there are a couple, a couple of yours that are favorites of mine that again relate to the same group of people and their machinations would be our enemies control the media because they have to the implication of which is no one would believe this without being conditioned to from cradle to grave you know no one would pretend even to believe these things were it not for that and then the other one is this is another one from a speech of yours what kind of person preaches blindness as a virtue? One who is up to no good. Yeah, I, I, I like both of those. The first one, actually, I think is, is based on something Alex Linder said. Uh, Jews control the media because they have to. Uh, and yeah, I... Uh, know that. I, yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a great line. Uh, there's a wonderful maxim that Sam Francis uh, had, which is that the vanguard of any organization is always further to the left than the followers. And unfortunately, that applies to the parties of the right as well. And so the, the Republican Party is always further to the left than the Republican electorate. The Democratic Party is always further to the left than the, uh, than the Democratic electorate. And this is why everything keeps sliding to the left. And of course, the question then is how to get things moving to the right. Well, you have to have a counter vanguard that has to be strong and principled and exert that kind of force that can pull the political spectrum in the other direction. And that's how I conceive of the metapolitical project that we're engaged in. We have to be that counter vanguard. We have to we have to literally turn the world around. And that's a massive, massive project. But it's interesting that we're having some success. Again, you, you cannot say that what's happened recently on Twitter with Elon Musk is the result of any particular influencer, right? However, I can say with very little doubt that none of this would have been happening without our movement. Our movement out on the margins of the internet, popularized certain truths and made them magnetic and powerful. And we have been pulling people in our direction. And we are now gaining the attention of extremely powerful and influential people. If not directly, then one or two degrees of separation away from us. And they are not just lurking. They are openly repeating the kinds of things that we've been saying for years. And this is extremely exciting. It would not have happened without our movement. We are turning the world around. We are shifting the conversation and we should be, 
Well, we should congratulate ourselves a little bit and we should redouble our efforts. This is the time to double down. It's not the time to say, well, Elon's got this. Charlie Kirk's got this. No, they wouldn't have gotten this without us. They wouldn't have gotten there. They wouldn't have gotten the ideas. Again, the awareness, I think, of the problem is something that every intelligent person has. The analysis of how this problem works, they, they might have gotten some of that from interacting with us. And the courage to speak out about it, I think they got that from interacting with us. So Morgoth, do you have any political maxims? I have a couple that have, uh, one of them's caught on a little bit, which I coined on Telegram a year or two back, which I called Morgoth's Law, which is that no matter what the crisis is or where it's happening, the end result will be more non-white men moving into Europe or, or, or the West at least. And funny enough, it, it's something which like almost every day I get tagged in something or somebody mentions it in the comments or something like that. Um, and another, another one that I had, which was from an older video when I did the hate read in the Guardian series, was um, if you're pushing at an open door, then you're not a dissident. And I mean, the first one, Morgoth's Law is pretty obvious. But the, the, this, the, the, if you're pushing at an open door, you're not a dissident was I was trying to um, get away where people could give the left an instant headshot so they wouldn't get bogged down in all of these sort of tiresome dialectical kind of bullshit arguments where they were calling them communists and, you know, you're the extremists, you're this. And, and I came to the conclusion that actually they're not. They present themselves as being some kind of radicals but when you look at it, when you look at the Owen Jones and the Ashsa Cars and all of these people, they're not radical. They are the system. And you can tell this by the fact that, and it was also the Morrissey Stormzy saga that I went through, which got it got quite uh, hot. Where, where I called uh, Stormzy, I said he was just a tool of, of the establishment and they, they wanted him there. They wanted that brand. They supported it. He wasn't in any way radical. And, and the idea of it was to, to kind of deflate their balloon and take all of the energy out of their arguments by tying them to Goldman Sachs or Amazon or BlackRock um, and kind of taking away the, the, the possibility that they could present themselves as radicals. Which I'm quite proud of, because back then it was le it was a mistake for people on the right to think of themselves as being the system, or think that they had were in some way, what you know, kind of like had the backing of power, which they didn't. And I wanted to dispel that myth and say, well, actual fact, these people who you see on television, these people who get the backing of the political establishment at Glastonbury pop concerts, that is the system. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. And and so that that would be my two. Uh, if you're pushing at an open door, you're not a radical. And uh, Morgoth's law on the, on the, on like world crises. I agree with the pushing on an open door one. I think that's brilliant. Greg Hood years ago at Countercurrents talked about the farce of American politics. He said the farce of American politics is that the is that the right pretends that they're the establishment. And the left pretends that they're the plucky outsiders. Whereas the reality is that the left is the establishment and that the right are basically the outsiders. They're, they're the subordinate ones, but they love to pretend like they're the man, like they're the system, and they really aren't. And, and, and I think that the, the 
they all play by those farcical rules. The left pretends to be the outsiders. But again, they're pushing on an open door. And they're pushing on an open door that basically ushers them into the suite where they run everything. <laughs> but they have to go through this farce of being the outsiders. Uh, I think it's hilarious. I also said this years ago about Jews. I said, Jews are bullies with the psychology of cornered rats. They basically rule everything, but they have the, psycho the psychology of a creature that's, that feels threatened with mortal peril at every single moment. Uh, and that's I do think Polish that that's... Proverb. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, hence that certain Polish proverb in the original video. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a great political maxim too. We have a few more questions here and we're, we're running short of time. So let me just sprint through some of these. Arctic Snow donated one ice cream. Thank you. White Capability, $10. I love you guys. And my daughter had a blast at the last event. Thanks for everything you do. Well, thank you very much for your support. And I really enjoyed meeting your daughter. And she did a great uh, great job for the, for the costume contest. Anglo-Saxon writes in with five library tokens just now. The biggest fear I have from the Jews is their Samson nuke option, which they will psychopathically take us all to death when their time will come, or if they conclude that they are at jeopardy, it's only a matter of time when their nation will demographically die, but their nukes will still be present. Well, this, this goes back to like the, the, psycho the psychology of the psychotic stalker girlfriend or the uh, abusive spouse. There is the psychology of the person who will, if, if they're going down, they're going to take you with them. And uh, that, that this sort of psychotic psychology is actual official Israeli doctrine for use of their nuclear weapons, which until recently they've all denied exist, I, I think is, yeah, it's, it's, it's truly dangerous. Uh, they are really a mad dog among the nations. Uh, not a light among the nations, a mad dog running amok, biting the nations. Dino writes in with three US dollars. When I was a kid, the news was the TV and newspapers. Kids do not watch or read or care about news. These days, all kids have phones, computers, and care. They cannot control the narrative anymore. That's a good point. Diogenes writes in with five US dollars. One can only hope with the full exposure of Jewish power in the US, in US politics, a full examination of black crime will follow. These are the main issues in the US as I see it. One can never resist. A I can never resist a film reference. Uh, anyone see the great comedy starring Jack Hawkins, The League of Gentlemen, 1960, Best Wishes All. I love Jack Hawkins, but I can't see that. I'm going to add that to my list. And we have a number of questions and comments and donations over at Entropy. So let me just hit those. Okay. Uh, Piedmont Fugitive writes in with 25 US dollars. The dam is starting to break. Indeed. Argo Spear, 50 US dollars. Thank you very much. Despite the warning not to talk about religion and politics at holiday parties, people approach all the time for ex exactly that. What are some condensed, focused, nationalist, white advocacy points worth making in short exchanges with a goal to be civil and conversational, but also with some willingness to be assertive and interestingly bold? I wish I had gotten to this before the 11 o'clock uh, or, well, yeah, it's 11 o'clock in Central Europe, 10 o'clock in the UK, and basically it's quitting time for the podcast. It's uh, 2 o'clock. It's lunchtime on the West Coast. Uh, but anyway, um, so 
how about we just uh, take some of those uh, political maxims that we uh, trotted out and, and say, try and work those in as, as talking points. Those, those would actually be good. I'm sorry, we just don't have time to say much more about that. Friedrich writes in with 10 US dollars. Thank you. Hello, dear panel. Our government's enabled too many groups to parasitize us and live quite well as a result. How difficult do you think it's going to be to take all of these groups off the gravy train? Best wishes. Well, again, that's a big, a big question. How difficult uh, will it be to take them off the gravy train? Um, it might be very, very easy if there's no more gravy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we might just have to have some kind of shock treatment. Um, Dr. X Cathedra writes in with 50. That's very generous. Greetings, sirs. Daily Wires, Myers, Matt Walsh with 2.6 million X followers now regularly names anti-white racism on his show. Even Jordan Peterson calls multiculturalism a miracle of stupidity. Beige pilling, best to you all, thank you. Uh, ABC writes in with 10 US dollars from, from 975 Nobel laureates, around 600 are white and about 213 are Jews trained by whites. The anti-white regulations obstruct innovation leading to a technological decline of the U.S. in relation to China and Russia. Are Musk's statements tacitly backed up by the industri mil industrial military complex? That's a big question, too. Um, let me basically say this. I do think a number of us on the panel have made comments to this effect. I think David has. I think Carl Thorburn, who's dropped off, has said this, that... Musk has to be aware that if mankind is going to go out into the stars, we have to can the diversity stuff and, and all the silly stuff that basically interferes with having promotion by excellence, looking, looking, you know, doing, doing hard scientific work and things like that. So I, I do think that he's being driven to consult or know, to confront the diversity regime because he has these Faustian technological aspirations. Now, whether or not the military industrial complex uh, might sign on uh, with, with this kind of stuff is an interesting question. I do think we have to con confront the fact that there, there, it's been 50 years since men have walked on the moon. We, it's half a century we were supposed to be in flying cars now, and instead we have flaming cars every New Year's. That's one that I stole from Matt Parrott, by the way. They promised us flying cars, and now we just have flaming cars when the, uh, the band muse erupt uh, every year. We have been diverted from our technological self-apotheosis. And how, how did it happen? Well, we su substituted a very different Faustian project, namely making Black people our equals. And it turned out that we weren't equal to that project. We have to stop wasting time and resources on impossible things like raising primitive peoples up to the 20th century levels. We have to go forward into the 21st and the 22nd century. It's a choice we've got to make. So thank you for that. Blade writes in, Five U.S. dollars. I agree with ethno-nationalism in general. However, what happens in the case that one ethnic group wants to expand their territory? At the end of the day, it comes down to force because one ethnic group may want to expand at the cost of another. Well, I mean, this happens all the time. You know, it's like saying I support human rights or I support laws against rape. But what if a man is horny and wants to rape someone, right? 
Well, you, you just have to say, we understand that that happens, that, that kind of stuff happens. That's why we criminalize it. That's why we have norms that militate against it. And that's why when people break these laws, we have measures in place to, to punish them. Now, with international law, we don't have an overarching world government that can do that, thank God. But there are measures that you can undertake to bring rogue states into line, like sanctions and diplomatic processes. And of course, arming people and, and eventually even going to war if necessary. So that, that's the simple answer. Ethno-nationalism is a norm that has to be backed up by force if somebody tries to aggress against another nation. RC writes in with 50 US dollars, says, good luck. Yannick Thorson, thank you for your work, Greg Johnson, 50 US dollars, thank you. Edmund Hillary, 50 US dollars, thanks for all the good guys you do. Sorry for taking so long to donate, I appreciate it. Austin writes in with 12 US dollars, do you see talented lawyers as being a potential value to the white nationalist movement? I just scored an almost almost perfect on the LSAT and I'm considering law school, but I only want to do it if I'm confident I can actually make an impact. Austin, email me at editor at counter-currents.com. The answer, the short answer is absolutely yes. And amongst the higher echelons of the movement, the law is the best represented profession. There are a lot of lawyers who are successful in this movement people who are equity partners in law firms, people who can pave the way for, for a job. And also, our movement is leaving a lot of money on the table because it is time for us to be suing people for anti-white racism. When millions of dollars can be awarded to people, like in the, the case, I think it was a Philadelphia a Starbucks employee was discriminated against on the basis of her white race, she received millions of dollars in damages. We should have our guys searching for those lawsuits. God knows there's no shortage of anti-white discrimination and we should be suing. We could make a big business out of fighting anti-white hatred and anti-white racism. Sesto Fior writes in with 15 US dollars. Thanks for the Tommy Robinson stream, very informative. Stephen writes in with $130 for the paywall. Stephen, email me uh, and tell me um, basically what email address you want to use and I'll set up an account and send you a password and you're in. And that does it folks for all these questions and comments. This is very generous. Thank you so much. So I'm sorry for filibustering here to the panelists. Folks, let's go through and sort of wrap up a few last thoughts on this amazing week on Twitter, this amazing amount of naming that's been going on, and any thoughts about the future? Let's start with Morgoth was the last to join in. So Morgoth, let's begin with you. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm out of touch. And the problem is it's so hard to, to sort of keep track of everything. But um, yeah, I'm, I, let's just keep going and see what happens next. Great. Uh, Ayatollah, do we address you as your holiness or what, 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 how do you address an Ayatollah? I, I don't know exactly how to do that. You, you, you address this one as Britain's most racist YouTuber. Um, courtesy, okay. of, yeah, courtesy of Red Flair via <laughs> uh, Dominic Kennedy and the aforementioned David Aronovich, who hosted both of the podcasts about me uh, when I was doxxed. I mean, as to... 
as to the kind of the times in which we live and where things are going, I'm kind of repeating some of what I said earlier on, or to sort of go a bit deeper into that. With everything that's happened since October the 7th, you know, you have to look at it and think that things have happened. And I, th- I think I probably know what some of them are, but maybe maybe less us than, than certainly the people that would have been expected to be the recipients of more sympathy. Maybe didn't detect them. Maybe didn't detect this kind of aggregate of things that have happened between, I don't know, whenever, like let's say 2014, when it last really kicked off on anything remotely like the scale we've seen now with the Jews and the Palestinians. Something happened b- b- prior to October the 7th that eroded a lot of kind of baseline sympathy for Jews. And it came as an almighty shock to them when on the bloodiest day in their country's history, their ethnostate's history, it was in such short supply. And I think their reaction to that, you know, characteristic of the sort of neurotic tendency um, and the, you know, kind of like a bit of what Morgoth was talking about earlier, the thing of becoming fat and stupid and complacent, which is an oft observed thing among them. In in kind of America through the generations, your Roberta Kaplan's and the likes, and your your Jonathan Greenblatt's are not as canny as the Abe Foxmans and the people that came before and the people that did the real heavy lifting of putting them into the position of of kind of supremacy. In their reactions to that, they've made it a lot worse. But I think the things that contributed to it, I think again we've got to kind of give ourselves a bit of a pat on the back for the insurgent influence of what was called kind of well the the alt right it was branded, but kind of the dissident right more broadly. It had an insurgent influence on you know, right-wing political discourse around 2015, 2017. Morgoth made this point, and I already made it myself, going back a few weeks, that, like, yeah, we're seeing with this that had more of an influence than perhaps we realise. You know, we saw a lot of people getting unpersoned and disappearing and going to jail, but had a big influence. I think the Epstein thing had an influence. I think the, the rising influence of the growing Muslim populations in the West, which is they're doing as we know. I think the ADL stuff with Musk and Twitter and Kanye West probably played a part. So... They seem to be making it worse all the time. David Aronovich is the embodiment of this with his reactions. The more obnoxiously they react to these things, the more they just look like a bunch, a big mean shower of bastards. They look very much like the the rich, entitled, spoiled brats, and it's a bad look. And the more the, the more they manifest that, the worse they make it for themselves. And it just it's a precipitous decline of credibility and of legitimacy. I think very interesting. I wonder how long it's going to go on. It's it's got the potential to go on as long as the conflict goes in this, because the thing with this is it's not the usual lightning quick news cycle thing, because it's an ongoing conflict, and they kind of can't put it back in the box for that reason. The acrimony persists on social media, and you don't just get the short memory effect quite so much. So it's quite incredible. The other thing you've seen is I'll just say this very quickly. It's been a real teachable moment for showing people the gross disparity between how our, our parliaments and our governments and our rulers behave, like sacking people for calling for ceasefires. And it tells you who they really serve. And then you say, yeah, that, that, that's also the reason they, they do the exact opposite of what we the people want on immigration and demographics and on how white people are treated. Same reason they're serving the same people. And then you can put, put that all together for people. Very interesting. Yeah, Pox, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it's really great, especially to see so many of us pushing in the same direction. Um, It's been really uplifting, really remoralizing to see people, even people who I criticized in the past, I have, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I had beef with, but disagreements with, but so many of us um, are on the same page right now, and we're pushing in the same direction. We're moving the ball up the pitch. Um, that's great to see. 
And yeah, it's a lot of it is all happening on social media. Meanwhile, in the real world, we're taking quite a few knocks uh, still. You know, the boats don't stop coming to uh, Lampedusa or the south of Spain or, uh, you know, Ireland or the or, um, United Kingdom, etc. Um, people are getting put in prison for their opinions. America still has political prisoners in solitary confinement, etc. But the media battle is important too. That battleground is important too. The information war, the propaganda war. And um, I just wanted to conclude by saying something that kind of ties back into uh, maxims and something that Morgoth mentioned um, earlier. He mentioned Schindler's List. And it's not really a, a law or a maxim, but um, a phrase that I often use to describe the world we're living in, or, or at least so much of what uh, founds the base of the world we're living in, is the Steven Spielberg version of history. And going forward, I think it's really important to take this opportunity to chip away at that narrative and at that Schindler's List sort of um, goodwill that that uh, fat bird has been living off of for so long. Um, that, you know, the Nuremberg narrative, the Nuremberg paradigm that we've been living in, because, you know, the JQ and uh, European interests, white interests, nationalism, why is it so difficult and why is it so important? Uh, it's because basically we can't have nations and we can't have, you know, as David uh, Aronovich says, we can't have white interests because, you know, basically, the National Socialists were nationalists. Look, it's right in the title, National Socialists. And they did the Holocaust, so that's why you can't have a country with borders and why you can't have um, a demographically a demographic majority like you used to have all the time until five minutes ago. Um, so really chipping away at that Steven Spielberg version of history. Um, I, I've just written about this, you know, the, the two articles, the, the last two articles of mine that will be on counter-occurrence are about this. Um, and I, I, I wish we didn't have to talk about the Second World War and, you know, all of the, the fog of war and the lies and the, the, the Hollywood, you know, uh, exaggerations. But it's the foundational myth of the liberal world order. And one thing that also has been going on since October 7th is a lot of accounts, some very big accounts. I'm thinking uh, Lucas Gage. Um, some others, there's a, a an MMA fighter or an ex MMA fighter who's kind Jake of a Shields. prick, to be honest. Jake Shields. He says some he says some dopey things too, and some kind of insulting things. He just recently assaulted English women, so he he's you know not great, but they've been asking questions and they've been posting uh, you know old newspaper articles and and videos and they and you know Hitler speeches with English subtitles and. Um, in the context of everything that's been going on since October 7th, it has, it has taken on new meaning and new relevance. And so I think that's an interesting angle that's being worked. And I, I love to see it. I think, you know, I, you don't need to be a neo-Nazi or a national socialist or whatever. I don't really care for any particular ideology. The truth is what matters. And, and dismantling lies, dismantling this house of cards that we are uh, forced to live inside of, um, I think is very important. And I see a lot of it happening. It's very, very good. Um, hopefully in the coming years, there'll be real world action and then we can really start celebrating. Wonderful. David, uh, I want to wrap up 
with you. And there's one thing that we touched on earlier that you have something to say uh, about yes. in particular, and that is the boycotts. Uh, all these merchants, these big merchants are now boycotting Elon Musk's Twitter, but we have the power to boycott them back. And that was one of the things that the first Homeland Institute poll talked about. So can you say a few words on that? Yeah. So if they're going to boycott Twitter, we need to boycott the boycotters. These people only understand force. And our poll found that we did a poll and we asked if people would be willing to boycott a business if it is accused of racism. And then we narrowed it down with asking if they could drive an extra mile or pay 10% more to see they would actually follow through as opposed to, you know, simply posting about it on Instagram. We want to make make sure they're willing to suffer a small but not insignificant detriment. And we found that for about every 10 people who said that said that they would boycott a business for being racist, whatever that means, seven said they would boycott a business for being woke. Here's the thing. That poll was conducted, I believe, was conducted several months ago. The climate is different. This would be about an even diff more different thing. Elon Musk or Nick Fuentes could really launch it. And I think it, we would have, we have more parity than that. We have more than a seven to a seven to 10 ratio probably on this because it's not just a right that's upset about the whole anti-Semitism Zionism thing. It's also the left to some extent because of the horrendous war crimes in Gaza. And so we could absolutely do it. I think it's more, it's extremely feasible. And two, we don't need to have exact parity. Because in the Cold War, you didn't need to have the same amount or even close to the same amount of nuclear weapons as your enemies. You simply needed enough to be able to hurt them. So we just need to have substantial parity. I think 7 to 10 is substantial parity. We probably have more. And it's like our own little Samson option. Okay, all these stupid movie places want to boycott Twitter. Well, you know what? Everyone's budget is very tight this holiday season with the undeclared recession. Let's cut out all this flack, all this liberal junk that we should have cut out anyways because it's useless. We'll boycott them. We'll make them hurt like they want to hurt us. They understand power. We'll speak to them in power. And Schlumberg said at the end of an age, the money is reigning supreme as with the Jewish merchants. Blood finally strikes back. And by blood alone is money overthrown. And blood... That doesn't just mean like it doesn't mean go out with an AK-47. It means through force of the will, through the people, and people rising up through mass boycotts and trashing businesses and stamping on the ashes is, I think, the way forward. Well, one of the main one of the main reasons for the second one being military a boycott on military enlistments. Yeah, that's well said. I think that we need to boycott the boycotters and that the, the power uh, is already out there. Uh, apparently Target is doing more retarded stuff and there's already a boycott campaign being revved up uh, for that. Uh, people, people like doing this. They like, it's slacktivism, right? We love slacktivism. Slacktivism by not buying stuff uh, and saving money is, it's, it should be irresistible. Uh, and so I'm really hoping that, yes, uh, we can do counter boycotts and it would be great if Elon Musk would say, okay, um, I want all of my followers to boycott Apple uh, or IBM or any of these companies that are boycotting him. Just go out there and say, well, if you support freedom, you have to boycott these people. Uh, 
I, I think it can be done. I think we're at a, at a turning point in history where we can start taking the initiative uh, and we can start showing that their weapons aren't as powerful as they think they are. They think they've got a winning hand and they've got nothing. They've got nothing but arrogance. Uh, they, they have a high self-esteem and uh, not much more than that. Uh, and I, I think that uh, it's, it's really a great time to be alive. Uh, it's exciting. And I can hardly wait for next week's Countercurrents Radio so we can talk about uh, more of this. But folks, we've been, uh, uh, we're over time. Thank you. We've had a peak of 300 people on the stream, which is gratifying. I want to thank everybody uh, who came on. I want to thank Morgoth. I want to thank Carl Thorburn. I want to thank the Ayatollah and Pox and David. I want to thank our moderators. I want to thank all the donors who've been very generous this time. I'm really feeling good about this uh, fundraising campaign. It's, it's kicking off. We're only 40% of the way to our goal, which is worrying me. But half of all fundraising takes place in the last quarter. Of course, we're now halfway through the last quarter. So we've really got a sprint to the end. Uh, it might be the case that nobody's going to swoop in and save us. And that's an opportunity for everybody to do their best. Uh, I've had people who say, you know, they, they've given me a donation. They said, I wish I were a millionaire. And I, my response to that is don't apologize for giving what you can. If everybody gave what they can, we would be fine. Uh, and that's true of countercurrents and true of the movement as a whole. If everybody who's listening simply donated what they can to the cause, we would have a very well-supported cause and we would be able to expand and increase our efforts and impact precisely at the time that we need it most, when the economy is bad, when there's political instability, and when courageous people who are smarter than me and have much bigger audiences than me are finally chiming in with the kinds of things that I've been saying out in the wilderness for, well, more than, more than 15 years, 13 years at countercurrents and two and a half years before that at, at the Occidental Quarterly. And then privately before that, uh, it's, it's extremely encouraging. I, I talked briefly today with Sam Dixon and Sam is usually a black pillar. And he said, things are so much better now. You can't imagine how restricted everything was, uh, you know, when there were before the Internet. Things are so much better. They are so much better. And, and uh, our opportunities are accelerating. So, folks, thank you for tuning in. And we will be back next week with another episode. We're going to have a, a post-Black Friday, pre-Giving Tuesday kind of telethon where we're going to pull out the stops. Uh, we might even have Jim Goad doing karaoke. Uh, anything to get this fundraiser rolling along uh, even more. So uh, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, of course, there'll be plenty of opportunity to talk about current things. And so join us again next week with another episode of Countercurrents Radio. Mm -hmm.